Turn, please, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we are working our way through the book of Romans. We've made it this far, and actually next week we will sum up um, by reading chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm intending to get through the rest of Romans 4 today. I think we can, because we've laid such a good foundation for it that I'll be able to go fairly quickly. But we're talking today about Abraham as a role model of faith. He becomes a role model, someone that we can look to. We think of Abraham, we should think of faith. We think, should think of sole fide, which has to do with, of course, right there on, on the wall, you can see, faith alone, and those things being put there in the Latin, but uh, translated for you. Romans chapter 4, just by a quick way of review, last week we saw Abraham and David as examples of sola fide, or of faith alone. And Paul proved that both were counted faithful by faith alone. Just look at that verse 3 of chapter 4 by way of review. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And then verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but of debt. Uh, when you work at your job, and you do what you're supposed to do, and uh, you fulfill your purposes, and your boss gives you your paycheck at the end of the week, or the end of the month, or whenever you get it, when you get your paycheck, it's not like, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm going to give you grace. Here's your paycheck. $15 an hour. There you go. Um, no, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. You've earned whatever it is. There's been an agreement made of how much salary you'll receive or how much you'll receive per hour. There's an agreement, and you worked for it, and you earned it. You cannot work for salvation, and you cannot earn it. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And this is a little different than the illustration I just gave. Because when you work for your salvation, or you try to work for your salvation, what's going to happen is you're further in debt. You're worse off. Because not only have you all those sins for which you can't atone, and you're trying to atone, not only that, but you're spurning the only way of salvation, the only way of grace, which is through the Lord Jesus Christ, which is adding sin upon sin upon sin. So it's actually sinful to try to work for your salvation. You're incurring more debt. And then verse number five, but to him who does not work, that doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we don't work for our salvation. To him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. So that's where we've been. And it was proven by Abraham, and it was proven by David. So new material, starting in verse number 9. Let's read it together. Romans 4, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. 
interesting argument being made here. But, um, and I'm not going to take us to the scriptures, but I did put them on your outline so that you could find them later, and I'll just mention them now. This is easily proven. Paul moves from how justification takes place by faith alone to when justification has come. And it came before circumcision. So the Jews, this is something they needed to understand. This is something that they needed to see. Something they needed to understand. It's easily proven from the scriptures because Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7, it's the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Guess what? It came to an uncircumcised man. Abraham had not been circumcised yet. And then Genesis 15, we have the covenant renewed and reaffirmed and expanded. And that's the key verse that we saw in verse number, um, let's see, in verse, in verse number three, we already read it. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That comes from Genesis 15. And he still is uncircumcised. How can this be? You know? And then we come to Genesis 17. And the entire chapter, again, reaffirms and reestablishes the Abrahamic covenant, adds to it, uh, gives more detail about it. Circumcision becomes the sign of the covenant. And Abraham was 99 years old. That's a rough time to be circumcised. <laughs> he was 99 years old. But he believed God, he obeyed God, he did exactly what God would say, and God promised him something in Genesis 17, verse 21. God promised him that uh, he would have a child. Well, that's pretty amazing when you're 99 to have a child. Something even more amazing? He'd have a child through Sarah, or Sarai as she's called, but her name changed to Sarah here, 90 years old. I'm not sure many 90-year-old ladies would like to have a baby, you know. Well, these were in, these were in pretty good shape, I'll give you that, because they lived longer. But that's not why they had the baby. It was a miracle baby. Isaac was promised Abraham by name at age 99, and guess what? At age 100, it happened, you know. And so this is what we're, it's all about that we're talking about here. Sola fide. For the Gentiles, faith for the Gentiles. Two things marked first century Jews. Paul's writing to first century Jews and first century Gentiles. And two things marked the first century Jews. First of all, the Sabbath. They loved the Sabbath. Gentiles, well, they had, the pagan Gentiles had their own religious ceremonies and such like that. But they didn't really have the concept of Sabbath like the Jews did. And the Sabbath was so important to the Jews, so important to them, and, and rightfully so, because God ordained the Sabbath. And, uh, but you notice, as you read the Gospels, and I think people get this wrong just as they simply read the Gospels, they see Jesus fighting against the Pharisees and their concept of Sabbath. So they say, ah, see, there is no such thing as the Sabbath. The Sabbath's gone. It, it's been eradicated. Uh, there is no seventh day. Uh, there is no uh, time that we should be worshiping God, no set time. It doesn't exist any longer. And they're getting the wrong idea because that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus himself observed the Sabbath. 
but he observed it properly. Okay. If you're hungry, guess what? You can eat on the Sabbath. If somebody's sick, you could visit them on the Sabbath, and you'd be doing a good thing. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. In fact, most of his healings that we read about, many of them, I'm not sure to the majority, but many of them took place on the Sabbath on purpose. He was confronting them, and he's basically saying, look, mercy is what it's about. You know, we need to have mercy. And to say that it's wrong to heal people on the Sabbath day uh, could not be getting it any worse. In fact, um, he used the illustration in one place, if your donkey fell into a ditch, you wouldn't, on the Sabbath day, you wouldn't leave it there and wait till the next day. You'd pull the donkey out because you have some compassion on the donkey. So shouldn't you have compassion on one made in God's image? So he didn't eradicate the Sabbath. The Sabbath tells us something very important, the fourth commandment. But the fourth commandment doesn't tell us what day is important as much as it tells us that there needs to be a set time of worship. A set time put apart, one day in seven, put apart from God. In this New Testament age, that is Sunday. And the thing that is often, it's kind of understood and kind of not understood, is there are a lot of ceremonial things that are added to the Sabbath that we don't have to observe today. Okay, how far you could walk, but things like that. Okay, those things are gone. They're ceremonial, but the day still remains. There's a set time to worship God, and the, <laughs> I used the illustration before, but it's it's kind of humorous. We we've said this for years, and we had um, a, a few uh, couples in the church. This was many years ago, well, at least twenty, maybe more. And uh, they were very offended that uh, we said that Sunday was the day of worship. They said, there was no such thing as a day of worship. We can worship any time that we want to. And three families got together. <clears throat> and they said, okay, we're going to start our own home church. And, and we're not going to be under this legal bondage of having to come on Sunday. And we will come on Sunday. We'll do that. But we'll only come once every three weeks. Now... I could not tell you how they came up with such an odd formula. But they did. Together, they all agreed that we will meet together in one of our homes once every three weeks to worship. And how long do you think that lasted? Uh, a couple months. <laughs> a couple months was about the extent of it. Because that's not what God ordained, and that's not what we should be doing. And, and uh, they had the wrong idea. I guess if you do that, One out of three Sundays I'll worship. You don't think worship's very important? You don't think it's very important and it's not a priority and it's not really what you want to do? It actually makes it more of a duty than what God has ordained. So that didn't last, that didn't work. I don't know what happened uh, to those folks. They fell by the wayside, I'm sorry to say. But Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the way the Jews interpreted the Sabbath was very, very important uh, to uh, them. And they needed to see what Christ has done instead. And the other thing was circumcision. Okay, circumcision and seventh-day Sabbath. Those are the two things that first-century non-Christian Jews really held dear. And so the great controversy happened, Acts 15, we've talked about many, many times. The Jerusalem Council, what were they going to say? And of course they said that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. 
But they did say there were four things they wanted Gentile Christians to do. Four things so you don't offend us that are Jewish Christians. Four things. It's kind of interesting what they were. <clears throat> and three of them were just for love's sake and really wouldn't even matter anymore. But they would have mattered in the first century. And one of them matters very much. It says, don't eat blood. Don't eat blood. Okay. Because that was very offensive to the Jews. And, and don't eat things offered to idols, which was interpreted by Jews as worshiping the idol. And that becomes a, a whole subject of itself that Paul takes care of in other places. And then they said, don't eat things that are strangled. So death by strangling, no, not allowed. So those three things that death Gentiles, for, for unity's sake, don't do that. And then they added one more that I've always thought was rather interesting. So I've looked into it uh, a little bit more to, to see why they would say that. Um, don't engage in sexual immorality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that go without saying? No, evidently not, because it needed to be said. The Corinthians needed to hear it. Corinthians needed to understand it, you know. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Because here's the thing. In the Gentile world, that was an acceptable norm. All kinds of wicked, vile things. The more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Doesn't that sound like modern-day America? You know? Yeah, I'm sorry. So it's one of the Ten Commandments, but it's one that the Jewish Christians stressed upon the Gentiles because of the background and the place that they were coming from. So, you know, these things uh, were, were really important and they were brought up that way. And let me just say this, just about sexual immorality one more time. Uh, it's been said that a man, and I think this could include a woman too, I don't remember who said it, but it's always stuck in my head ever since they said it. From the pulpit here, one of our guest preachers said it one time. Uh, they said that uh, when someone's inflamed by lust, they'll walk right through the fires of hell itself to fulfill their lusts. And I think that's true. If you're inflamed by lust. And so we need to understand the difference between love and lust we need to understand the difference between the love of a husband and wife, which was given to us by God. You know, it's not a husband and a husband, not a wife and a wife. A husband and a wife. One husband, one wife. Okay. So we're real clear now, so we all understand what we're talking about here. Okay. That's, that's love. It's meant to be a loving union. And it's very satisfying. It's very wonderful. What's the difference between lust? Lust can never be satisfied. It, it cannot. If you're engaged in lust, lust will never be satisfied. It cannot be satisfied. I don't care what kind of, of lust it is. You know, anything other than a man, one man, one woman, it's going to be lust. And the more that you feed it, the more you will inflame it. So that's important to realize. That's important to say. So, at any rate, 
you know, just to go. Those are the four things that the Jewish Christians asked the Gentile Christians to observe out of love and even for their own good, especially the sexual immorality. Now, verse 11 and 12, Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised faithful. In case we don't understand what Paul is saying, in case they didn't understand what Paul was saying, and he, verse 11, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And that becomes just a major doctrinal point that became the impetus of Acts 15. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Uh, the answer is no. And of course, um, Paul's making that argument right here. Abraham was saved. Abraham knew God even while he was uncircumcised. And he uses that to point to it. And Galatians 3.16, uh, I put it on your outline there. Great verse. Something for us to really pay attention to. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Isn't that something how one little letter can make all the difference in the world? Not offsprings, you know, but your offspring. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, yeah, but Christ has many, many, many that are, yeah, but all that believe in Christ are in Christ. So it's like one. It is like one. And so not offsprings, you know, not a particular race. And Abraham had many children. Uh, later, he would keep having children, and uh, many of them, of course, are, are unbelieving uh, nations today, and um, uh, even Muslim nations to an extent. So, you know, that being a, a child of Abraham is no guarantee of anything. But there was a child of Abraham that's a guarantee of everything. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And his meritorious death for us, his work for us, his life for us, all these things. So circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification. But let's suppose that Abraham decided uh, circumcision. I'm 99 years old. I don't think I'm going to do that. Okay. But he's justified. He has the Lord. And Old Testament saints, like New Testament saints, still sin. But they want to follow the Lord. That just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be a case where Abraham was now going to be a man of faith and then say, no, forget it, not going to happen. That, that's ludicrous. So sum up. Salvation comes by faith, not by ceremony. And on this point, the Roman Catholic Church is probably the greatest offender. Because ceremony is what it's all about. Baptism becomes so important. Is baptism important? Absolutely. But we really can't equate baptism with circumcision. We really can't do that. A circumcision did not 
confer righteousness on Abraham, it simply confirmed it, that we can do. See, baptism is not going to confirm righteousness to anyone either, but it does confirm it. So in that way, it's alike. We can see baptism similar to circumcision in that way. But uh, the true baptismal candidate in the New Testament is telling the world that they're a Christian. They've died with Christ and have been risen to new life in Christ. That's why one of the chief reasons we don't baptize babies. Uh, They can't do that. And they don't do that. They can't do that. Somebody does something to them. No, baptism's important. And uh, Lord will, we'll have a baptism here soon in our church. We'll have a couple baptized soon. But um, it's not for salvation, but it is for obedience to the command of Christ. Two New Testament ordinances, baptism is one and only once. True baptism need only take place once. Then the other ordinance or sacrament of the church is communion, a meal that we partake of often. We move on to verse 13. Sola fide transcends the law. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we've really dealt with that before. Uh, Simply to say the law does not provide eternal life for us. Trust in the law makes the promises void. Trust in the law is ultimately trust in ourselves. And, uh, you know, if we have to keep the law to receive the promise, the promise is never going to come. Simple as that. Verse 15, um, for the law brings about wrath. That's if you trust in the law. If you trust in law keeping, just the very thing we'd said before and have said over and over in this part of Romans. Verse 16, therefore it's a faith that it might be according to grace. So the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the Jews, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. Interestingly enough, you know, it's fashionable in our day to preach to felt needs, you know, or very practical things like how to do it, you know, self-help sermons, so to speak. Well, in our attempt to be practical, we could miss the most important thing of all. And I ask, why did God inspire Romans? Why did God inspire Romans chapter 4? Is it possible that we need to know God's way of righteousness more than just about anything else in this world that we need to know. It's a matter of life and death. Eternal life and eternal death. Righteousness comes from God. Look at your outline there. Righteousness comes from God, Romans 1.17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it's written, the just shall live by faith Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And then Romans 4.5, faith is the instrument God gives 
to receive Christ. Faith is the instrument God gives to us to receive Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 4, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now we will be talking about sanctification as we work our way through Romans. But it's very important that we get justification right before we talk about sanctification. Because you cannot have true sanctification without justification. And you cannot have justification with any mention of works at all, except the works of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Justification will always be first. And guess what? The justified sinner will always have sanctification following. You know, no such thing as praying your prayer to Jesus and then walking away and never thinking about him again. That's easy believism. And I'll tell you what, it's not easy to believe. It's impossible to believe the right way unless God opens your heart. That's what he does. Okay, so we continue on here. And as you can see, I'm, I'm going quickly through the chapter because... This is really the summation of what things we've been talking about. Verse 16. Therefore it's of faith that it might be according to grace, so the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also of who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Well, he's the father of the faithful. Not just the Jewish people. He's the father of all the faithful. And it's always a, a joy to look out even over a small congregation like ourselves and, and see a, a wide range of races, which is kind of like a microcosm of the people of God of, of all the ages. We'll see uh, just uh, the every tribe, tongue, nation, kindred represented. So in Christ, it really is true to say that race doesn't matter. There's only one division in the human race. And that's the saved and the lost. That's the Christian and the non-Christian. It's the believer and the non-believer. Or the believers and the wrong things. The, you know, that's the true division, the only distinction that matters and will matter for all eternity. And then his faith was in God who raises the dead. His faith was in God who raises the dead, as it says. And it's sometimes debated, um, did the Hebrews believe in, in life after death? And there are many scholars that will tell you that they didn't. And there are many Jewish scholars that will tell you that they didn't and that they don't. Okay. Well, we can go to the Bible and we can solve this one. Because um, there was a dispute between Jesus and the Sadducees. They tried to trick him. Say, well, you know, this guy had, this lady had a husband, he died, she didn't have a child. Then her, then her brother, or the man's brother raised up seed, tried to, but he died without a child, and blah, blah, blah. Went seven, ridiculous point. Seven husbands None of them gave her a child and she died. Whose husband is it going to be for her in heaven? 
Now, you could probably confound a Mormon with a question like that, you know, <laughs> uh, who believe in marriage in heaven. Uh, but, but Christ actually um, answered very interestingly. He said, you don't believe the power of God. You don't understand that in the resurrection it's not like that. Interesting that he would say that because he was talking to people that didn't believe in the resurrection. They used that illustration that I was giving, not very well, but that illustration I was giving uh, to try to prove, you see, there is no resurrection. How ridiculous would that be? That's what they were trying to do. That's what they were trying to show. And uh, the Lord says, no, there is a resurrection. A resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. And their great error was to believe not believe in the resurrection. Interestingly enough, uh, many Jews did believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. Uh, they believed in all these sorts of things. They were actually much, much closer to the truth than the theological liberals of their day, the Sadducees. Okay. And that's the way it is. And the last part of verse 17. Who gives life to the dead, and now notice this, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You go, hmm. And I'll just say this about that. Time is irrelevant to God. We live in time. Time is kind of like a master to us, you know. Church started at 10 o'clock this morning. Maybe you thought it started at 11. It started at 10, okay? So we'll get that one set first of all. And next week, you, you want to sleep in? Next week, you get your one chance a year to sleep in because the clocks are going backwards. So if you come here uh, at, um, okay, it's going to be a different time next week. But time is very relevant to us. It's absolutely irrelevant to God. We don't know what it's like to exist above and beyond time. And uh, the only way we can even think of eternity is to think about, well, it never ends. It just keeps going. Well, let me put it this way. To God, time is really not a factor. But I don't know that we can actually do that to ourselves in this present, in this present day. We're all aging, we're getting older. Some of you are really happy and thrilled that you're getting older. Some of you are going, well, I'm getting closer to heaven because I'm getting older. You know? So it just depends on how you look at it there. But maybe, think about Abraham. A year from now, you'll have a baby. I'm 99 years old, my wife is 90, how can this be? A year from now, you'll have a baby. What if somebody told you a year from now you'll have a baby? Some of you wouldn't be real happy about that, would you? <laughs> okay, With that, that's a little different story. But it takes nine months for a baby. Okay, To some it would be a surprise, to some it would be happy, to some it would be a miracle, or some it would be like Abraham and Sarah. You know? Well, God knows even that, that baby, let's suppose that there's a baby that's going to be born on March of 2025. Okay, that's more than a year from now. March of 2025, a baby's going to be born. To one of you, but we don't know who. That's not a prophecy, it's an illustration. Okay, March of 2025, a baby's going to be born 
to one of you. And you'll have a baby in your arms. If that were true, God would know who that baby is. He would know their names. And he would know, God would know, if it was one of his elect children or not. That's just the facts of the matter. God would know because it's preordained. Now, it may take 50 to 90 years for us to know who the elect is, if that baby grows. And God doesn't disclose election like that. How does God disclose election? By faith. When there's faith, then we know. Okay, that's what we see. Okay, God knows. And more than that, he planned it. It's more than knowing. And I remember hearing one time, actually I've heard it many times, and I've said it many times. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true, true. Did it ever occur to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Because he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so that's, you know, calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And that's why I used the baby illustration. You know, if a baby's going to be born in March 2025, he or she does not exist yet. There aren't souls in heaven waiting to be embodied. Okay, doesn't exist yet, but will exist. And in God's mind, we could say already exists, because that's God. Okay, now, verse 18 and 19. Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He believed in hope during a hopeless situation. You know, and God did grant Abraham his Ishmael. And um, Abraham even prayed, Lord, let Ishmael live before you. God says, nope, that's not the chosen one. It's going to be Isaac. Okay. And that's what it says in Genesis, 7, or, yeah, Genesis 17. And God granted Abraham many more sons through Keturah when he was over 120 years old. God restored his lost vitality and the lost vitality of Sarah. And it pleases God when we believe him in the face of seemingly hopeless situations. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations that seem absolutely hopeless. How in the world can we possibly get out of this? Usually it's not hopeless, it's just difficult. But sometimes it just seems hopeless. So we worry and sometimes we falter. But Christian, buck up because God is still on the throne. He loves you and he will take care of you. You don't have to bribe him. You don't have to coerce him. You don't have to try to get him to love you more. Because guess what, Christian friend? He already loves you. Absolutely, infinitely so. You don't have to earn his love. And if you try, debt, okay? If you try, it's debt. But believe, trust, look to him. He's already on your side. He loves you infinitely. 
God will take care of you. Be faithful, be responsible, but above all, be believing. Okay. In verse 21, or 20. He, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. God promised it. God could do it. And it's not our faith that makes the difference. It's the faith that's given to us by God. This is, this is where the, the word of faith movement gets it so wrong, because they try so hard to get enough faith. If only they can get that little bit of extra faith. If only they can convince themselves to believe a little harder. When the truth of the matter is, faith is given by God. Faith is grown by God. We're not talking about positive thinking. We're not talking about uh, anything like that. We're talking about faith in God. Verse 22. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised, God could perform. Therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And what does Abraham mean to us? What does Abraham mean to us? Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Powerful words. Concluding words. But not really the thought ending here. As we'll see next time, next week, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. We're going to be talking about this just a little bit more and working our way towards sanctification. Okay, so God justifies then and now by faith. This is why the Old Testament is still relevant. Really, don't, don't omit the Old Testament from your reading. And the more you know about the New Testament, the better you'll do in the Old Testament. I've found that to be true. Um, just personally, from, from studying so deeply in Revelation, uh, Ezekiel makes more sense than it ever did before. It's the way it is. The, the more you study and the more you know, uh, the more you profit. But what do we say about the Old Testament? It's primarily relevant in three ways. Primarily. It's relevant in many ways. But primarily relevant in three ways. That God justifies then and now by faith. The Old Testament will point us to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the, the pre-incarnate revelation of God, of who God is and how he works with men points us to the coming Redeemer. And then third of all, we can learn from the Old Testament examples that are given, Abraham being one of them, as we've seen here. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So I just conclude by asking you, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Do you have faith. I imagine every one of you in this room believed that there was a Jesus. Uh, it's pretty ignorant nowadays to try to say that Jesus never lived. That, that's kind of ignorant, to tell you the truth. That was, that was scholarship 50 years ago. Now it's like head buried in the sand. Okay. 
So you probably believe that there was a Jesus. But let me talk to you that don't believe in him. You know, you've broken God's law. And there's a price to pay for that. And, and you need to have a remedy. Well, you have lied. You've dishonored your parents. You've lusted in your heart. You've coveted your neighbor's possessions. And even if you say, well, no, no, I, I don't think any of those things are true of me. I'll give you one that is true. You haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I can prove you haven't. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind because you don't trust in Jesus. You don't trust in the only one that can save you. So with that being the case, guess what? There are believers and there's unbelievers. And you are an unbeliever if you're not trusting in Jesus. And your unbelief will sink you into hell. Don't think that the unbelieving will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely not. And I don't say that to condemn you in any way other than what the Bible already condemns you in. And my heart breaks for you. And I just ask you, please, why would you die? Why would you die? Why would you remain in your sin? Why would you refuse to come to the only source of healing and reconciliation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Won't you just fall on your knees and cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and look to him alone? Only he can save you, and he will save you. And if you remain in your stubborn unbelief, all I can say is, well... Lived in sin, died in sin. We know what happens. But won't you trust him? Won't you look to him? Won't you come to him? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, these are monumental things that we're talking about. And they're things that are really out of our hands to such an extent. We need to realize our helpless situation. We need to realize our hopeless situation unless we come to Christ. Lord, help us to look to him, the only savior of sinners. And if someone can walk away and refuse to believe, then we fear, Father, that maybe there never were elect. But we'll hope, Father, that their rejection is temporary, and that you will bring them to yourself. Every true believer will come to Jesus Christ, but every non-elect person will continue in their rejection, finding some other way, finding some other hope, finding some other solace, maybe just putting it out of their mind altogether. So many ways to refuse to come but there is only one way, one way of salvation, to come to the only Savior of sinners. Father, help even one here today
to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and would give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.